yeah, if you have, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Michael. Excited to share the word with us today. As Christy mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, where we celebrate this triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And I have this little picture here to depict it. Jesus rides into the city on this donkey, and the people line the streets. They're taking off their cloaks, and they're laying it down before him. Um, and they're waving these palm branches in the air. You can see in the back there, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, today's a day where we celebrate this, this triumphal entry of Jesus into the world as a good king. But I think what's interesting is that these very people who are waving the branches and who are shouting Hosanna are the same people who in a matter of days will be the ones who are saying, crucify him, crucify him. They're the ones who are condemning him to death on a cross. And, you know, it makes me, it makes me think about um, the fact that they have no idea at this day on Palm Sunday who it is that they're welcoming into the city, who they're waving these branches for. And I think about my little boy, Isaac. Many of you have met him. He's a little one-year-old, almost two. And recently, um, he's learned how to say hi, and he's learned how to, like, wave his hand. And I have this photo here. This is him standing on our coffee table waving hi to Bluey the dog on Netflix and this is what he's always doing you know when you take him grocery shopping when you take him out to see the neighbors he'll wave hi and say hi to almost anyone having no idea who they are that's what the religious leaders and that's what these people are doing here on Palm Sunday they're welcoming in King Jesus not knowing what it means that he's king but you know Jesus he's about to usher in this new kingdom one that was not only contrary to what the world expected, but contrary to what these people expected here in Jerusalem, especially the religious leaders. You know, we're continuing through this sermon series, The Way of Jesus Through the Gospel of John. And what we've seen over the past couple of weeks is that Jesus constantly is getting into conflict with the religious leaders of the time. He's saying, you think you know what my kingdom is like, what the kingdom of God is like but I have come to reveal the true kingdom of God. I come as a different yet a greater king, one that's different and greater than you could ever imagine. And today we're going to be looking at this, um, continuing on in John chapter 8, and we'll use this passage to show how Jesus exemplifies two words that throughout scripture define a good king more than any other words, that these two words have served over and over again throughout the Old Testament to um, as these prophetic pointers of King Jesus, of a good King Jesus, and yet have often, so often been misunderstood and misused in our time today, in our world, and also by the religious leaders. And those two words are righteousness and justice. I'll show you a few examples. Um, this is a famous passage from Isaiah chapter 9, a prophetic word of King Jesus. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. You know, another one here, Psalm 89, describing again, King Jesus, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And a last one, another prophetic word of King Jesus, Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You know, in fact, these two words, righteousness and justice, they appear 1,576 times throughout scripture in 1,379 verses. 
you know, compare that to other words that you might think are common, like love and like heaven that only appear half as many times. You know, clearly these two words, righteousness and justice, are not peripheral ideas in the Bible, but are so central to who Jesus is as king and who he calls his people to be. So we're going to look at this, um, we're going to look at this text today in, I don't have the slide, in um, John chapter 8. And we're going to see how Jesus exemplifies these two words. You know, but before we do, I want to get, we do so, I want to give a short disclaimer about the passage. You know, if you open it up in your Bible, you'll notice that this passage, namely John 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11, does have, um, it might have a footnote that, that talks about the text, or the text might actually be in these like double brackets, or depending on your version, it might totally just not have the passage in it. And what's happening here, why that is, is it because predominantly, most of the New Testament scholars today agree that this text that we're going to look at was not part of the original work of John, the original writing of John that we find in the Bible. And thus, most scholars do not consider this part of the original canon, the original set of scripture that we do consider authoritative. So the translators here, whatever English version you may be reading, whether it's NIV or ESV, they're trying to let you know as the reader, make you aware that, that this passage here um, does not contain that authoritative scripture that other passages that have been looked at with the same eye, with the same um, research does. So you may ask then, then why, are we, why are we preaching through it? Why are we preaching through this if it wasn't part of the original authoritative work? I think although this passage was likely not part of the original um, authoritative canon of scripture, original John's work, most New Testament scholars do agree that this is a historic, historically reliable eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Uh, I'll give you a few quotes here. This is from a very famous New Testament scholar, Bruce Metzger. He says, the account here that we'll read has all the earmarks of historical veracity, that you see things like minute details that were only found in historical prose, and it lacks things like super spiritualized imagery that you'd find in, in the fiction or in the Gnostic works of that time. Um, another Another scholar, very famous New Testament scholar, Don Carson, says it this way, there is little reason to, for doubting that the event here described occurred. Therefore, you know, I think we're going to look at this passage today, and, and my hope is not, not to draw some authoritative theology from this passage, but to see how this reliable account of the life of Jesus shows his the way he ushers in a kingdom of righteousness and justice, you know, this true biblical version of righteousness and justice, not something new that he develops, but something that we find throughout all of scripture. If you don't mind, I'd love to just open us up in a word of prayer before we start here today. Yeah, King Jesus, we welcome you here today. We welcome you to this building, to, to your church, into our lives on this Palm Sunday. Would you bring us to your word today, God? not like the people in Jerusalem who are unaware of who you are as king, but would you make us today fully aware that you are a king of righteousness and justice? God, would you calm our hearts? Would you open our hearts to your spirit? And would you show us your way today? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's our text. We'll read it together. John 8, and I'll start in verse 2. It reads this, early in the morning, he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? 
They, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the scene is set here. We're in the temple, and the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the time, they drag this woman out before Jesus. And twice it's stated here that she was caught in the act of adultery, and the religious leaders, they want to stone her for her actions. And what's happening, this is a direct reference to two verses in Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 22, that says, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, that they should both be put to death. But why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? We see the motive in verse six. It says, they said this to test Jesus. They they see Jesus, he's going around, he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners, he's having a good time with them. And he said, that doesn't align with my view of righteousness and justice. They don't think this lifestyle makes sense to them or is possible to them. So they want to trap him. Uh, many of you know my wife, Lonnie, she's on, she's on bed rest now. And so she spends a considerable amount of time sending me these YouTube videos to watch. And this is one that she sent me recently. So it's a pretty old video. I don't know if anyone watches Jimmy Kimmel, but he does this segment here about his uh, cousin, Aunt Mickey. And if you, if you haven't had the chance to watch it, I recommend just YouTube it. It'll make your day. But he, he describes Aunt Mickey, or his cousin Mickey as, as the nicest, the most kindest person in the world. And so what does he do? He comes up with this elaborate prank to, to reveal that she, she's actually, maybe she's actually not. And she pretends to be this woman who, who she buys this house from. And instead of being, being kind to her, he's incredibly offensive and incredibly rude to her to see how she, she will react, that his motive is to test her. You know, that's what the Pharisees are doing here, that they say Jesus' character, his way of life, they just don't connect with my view of righteousness and of justice. How can Jesus read the Bible and how can he even go on considering a woman caught in adultery like this is so far from my definition. So the first point I want to make is, is what I'm going to call the religious view, not the biblical view of righteousness and justice. Why? One, because it is the view of the religious leaders in this text. But two, I think we'll see that it's not only their view, it's the view of many religious leaders throughout the Old Testament that God chooses to condemn. And I think lastly, we see that this word righteousness today, it's, it's often equated to the idea of religion, and it's often done so with a negative connotation. So we're going to talk about these three things. Um, yeah, first, in the, sorry, I'm going to go back. First, in the first point, the view of the religious, religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scholars, they say to Jesus, you know, I'm living rightly, I'm living justly. They say, I'm doing everything I can to follow the law. I'm not doing wrong, and that makes me good. That makes me deserving of goodness. But this woman, she's done wrong. She deserves punishment. That is the just thing to do. This person, she's a moral sinner, therefore deserves death according to the law. You know, that is their full view of what righteousness and justice is. But the second view is that it's not new to the religious leaders. This is something that the people of the Old Testament the religious leaders of the Old Testament are constantly being condemned for, that the prophets Amos, the prophet Micah, Hosea, Isaiah, constantly are condemning the people of Israel for this very view. I'll show you this in um, one verse, Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 2. God here, through the prophet Isaiah, he's condemning the religious leaders of Israel. And here's what he says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. 
as if they were a nation that did righteousness. You know what the people of Israel, they did at this time, seem to be doing what we'd expect probably good Christians to be doing. See what it says there. They're seeking God daily. They're delighting to know the ways of God, but God is not happy with them. The key phrase here is as if. They do all these things as if they were a nation that did righteousness. The Israelites are plenty religious, but God says they have wrongly equated that to righteousness. And you know, the last point here is, is how is this term righteousness understood today? It often carries this, this really negative connotation, one that says like, this is better than everything else. You know, I think about like the surfer saying, dude, that was a righteous wave, but this was like the, the best wave that he saw. Or, or maybe even worse, you think of someone saying, um, look at that guy acting all righteous, holier than thou, thinks he's better than us. You know, and maybe in Christian circles, you hear of righteousness talked about as this idea of moral perfection, this idea of maybe not drinking or not smoking or not having sex. And justice for many, this other term carries this connotation of punishment, this idea of punishment for wrongdoing, this idea that justice is served, that that is the full view of what people think of when they think of righteousness and justice. You know, at worst, I think righteousness carries this, this connotation of bigotry, of self-righteousness. And at best, the religious leaders in, the, in Jesus' time in the Old Testament, that they see it as this idea of personal piety, of private morality, as this idea of diligence and prayer, of this personal holiness and justice is understood as this idea of missing the mark, punishment for missing the mark. But in Isaiah 58, we see that God says they are the ones missing the mark. Declare to my people their transgression. That taken either way here, that what we're seeing is this definition is missing the mark of true biblical righteousness and justice. So the second point is, what is that true definition? What is this, this righteousness and justice that Jesus ushers in? And what we have to know first is that the two words in Hebrew, righteousness and justice, you know, they appear all these times, but they actually appear together a lot of times as well. 76 times. They appear side by side, often in the same verse, in a way that is, that is so connected, almost interchangeable, interchangeable, if not deeply woven together. I'll show you again a few examples. This is a Job verse 29. Job chapter 29, verse 14, he says, I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice was my robe and my turban. Or here's another uh, famous verse used um, from Amos chapter 5, verse 24, says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. You know what the authors here, they're trying to do, they're not trying to contrast what is clothing with a robe and a turban, they're not trying to contrast a river to a stream. They're using these two concepts together. You know, um, this idea, this literary device in Hebrew called synonymous parallelism to emphasize a single concept. They're saying this is um, maybe the same thought or at least a similar thought that is deeply interwoven. In English, you know, it's similar to the way we use terms like warm and cozy. Or for the students here, you know, the absurd amount of money the schools charge for things like room and board. Words that go together, that completely work together, that are not contrasted. And that's Hebrew, but in Greek, it gets even more clear. Greek, the original language of the New Testament, gets even more clear that there is only a single word that describes both these concepts. And that word is um, dikaiosune. It describes both words for righteousness and justice. Um, in English, though, that word often gets translated to righteousness. But if you look at other languages like, like Spanish or French, um, they actually, the word in Greek actually gets translated to their word for justice. 
Again, it's like the words come together completely. So, so what we have to know is that in the original language, these words form this unified concept and they have to be understood together. That's what Jesus is ushering in. But what do they actually mean in the original language? Let me show you that in, in Hebrew, the first word we see here for justice is the word mishpat. And according to Hebrew scholars, it means giving someone what he or she is due. It, it refers both to this idea of retributive justice, maybe what, one that we're familiar with, that crime and punishment, the idea that sin must be paid for, but it's only, it's only a part. There's actually this greater emphasis in scripture on another form of justice. You know, recently um, we saw, if you guys watched the news, that we had a new justice, Supreme Court justice, sworn in on Friday, and her name is Ketanji Brown Jackson. And, and I took this quote from her confirmation ceremony on Friday with President Biden, Vice President Harris, and, and reads this. She reads this, it is an honor and honor of a lifetime for me to have this chance to join the court, to promote the rule of law at the highest level, to do my part to carry our shared project of democracy and equal justice under the law forward. And another part in her speech, she quotes um, Dr. Maya Angelou. She says in one of her poems, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. You know, the slave being the symbol for us today of those who have been oppressed and those who have been wronged. You know, I'm, no lawyer, I'm no lawyer or expert in the law, but what I do know is that she sees her role of, as a justice and for all other justice as far more than just retributive, but equal justice of, for all, of this idea of giving hope to those who are vulnerable. In the Bible, there is this special emphasis on the second form of justice called restorative justice, this idea of intentionally seeking out the vulnerable and the victims of injustice in order to help them, this idea of even taking steps to advocate for them to prevent further injustice. In summary, it could be to treat everyone, all people, equitably. And this word, this word mishpat, this word for justice, is used throughout the Bible in the context of those who are the most vulnerable in society. This word that relates to how we treat those people. Um, another example, Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, he does, who is not partial, who takes no bribe. And here's the key, he executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. He loves the sojourner, he gives him food and clothing. Another example, um, Jeremiah chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In the eyes of God, justice, it surely is this idea of retributive justice, that there is sin that needs to be paid for. But first and foremost, it is a command to love and to defend the most vulnerable members of society because they're the very people God chooses to identify with. You know, Psalm 68 says this, he is a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows. That these neglected classes of people are, are made in God's image and they are the very people who he chooses to identify with and who deserve di dignity and care. That's the first word for mishpat, that, that is used mishpat for justice in the Old Testament. But again, there's a second word, righteousness. And in Hebrew, it's the word sadaka. And Hebrew scholars, again, they say this is, this is not a term that refers primarily to this idea of morality, to sinless living, but it, it means this idea of right relationships, a highly relational term, right relationships with God and with one another. 
That's the term tzedakah. And um, Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, describes it this way. He says, in the Bible, tzedakah, the Hebrew term for righteousness, refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, with generosity, and equity. The righteous are, by definition, those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, while the wicked are those who put their economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of community. Biblical righteousness is inevit inevitably social because it is all about relationships. That is this highly relational word. And he goes on to say that if you put these two terms together, this idea of justice and this idea of righteousness, um, you get the term social justice. You get the term relational justice. It surely includes a right relationship with God where one reflects his holiness and who he is. But it is predominantly focused on this one aspect of who God is. Summarized, I think in this way, that out of a right relationship with God, one experiences deep relational care for others around you especially those who are the most vulnerable. That is how this term is used throughout scripture. And what we see in our text today, where we'll go back there, is that Jesus does what all the prophets of the Old Testament do, that he accuses the religious leaders of misunderstanding it, and he shows a way toward true righteousness and true justice. We can read on um, to the second half of the passage. In verse seven, it says this, and as they, the religious leaders, Leaders continued to ask him. He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more that this is Jesus's response. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He responds to their trap with a trap of his own. He says, you think your righteousness and your justice are revealed through your ability to live these pious lives um, and to identify those around you who aren't living pious lives. But for a moment here, would you consider your own sin? He says, you know, I know there's something fishy going on here that if you look back in the law, if you look back at Le um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see that in the case of the adultery, there were at least two things that had to happen. One, at least two witnesses had to come forward to testify against it, having actually seen the act of adultery happen with their own eyes. But two, that both parties, the man and the woman, were to be stoned to death. But something is missing from this story, from this passage. You know, where is the man? Where's the man? If the Pharisees bring the woman out, accusing her of adultery, they also must have had seen the man. And either one, they are guilty of the sin of partiality, taking advantage of this woman and not the man, or two, they're guilty of the sin of false witness. There's, they did not actually see this offense happen, and yet they accuse her. You know, either way, what Jesus sees from these religious leaders is this lifestyle of targeting the people who are the marginalized class, in this case, the woman at the time. And in his response, he says, you, the religious leaders, are just as guilty of sin. While they may practice this idea of personal holiness, they may even give generously to the temple and to the poor, their hearts were far from this idea of relational justice, the care for the oppressed, disadvantaging of themselves for the sake of community that the Bible speaks of. You know, in fact, it's completely opposite. It was maintaining their own power by trying to trap Jesus, 
by letting this man off the hook, likely because maybe he was a respected individual, or maybe even worse, maybe it was one of them. Jesus' Jesus's response to them, it catches them completely off guard. He says, let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone. And what we see is the religious leaders, they walk away one by one. But Jesus, he remains with and he restores this vulnerable woman. He doesn't approve of her sin. He doesn't leave, but he doesn't also leave her uncared for. Under King Jesus, the playing field for all these people is completely leveled. He shows the religious leaders they are just as sinful as this woman, and he makes them aware of that. But under King Jesus, the adulterous woman is shown to be worthy of just as much care and just as much dignity as the religious leaders because she too is made in the image of God. And he makes her aware of that through his care, through his um, righteousness and his justice toward her. You know, he ushers in this new kingdom marked by righteousness and justice. He says, in my kingdom, all are sinners and all are made in the image of God. Therefore, all are to be cared for with the same equity and the same righteousness and the same justice that they deserve. You know, I ask us today, what is our view? What is the view you have of righteousness and justice? Is it one that is merely personal holiness, internal character change, some avoidance of sin, or is it this active relational justice in your community that is spoken of by the prophets and by Jesus? The religious leaders, again, they're, they're kind of like um, my little, little boy, Isaac. I have so many stories to share of him because he's kind of like a sponge at this time. Just, there's just taking in so much information and learning so many new things. You know, the other thing that he, he's been doing a lot of lately is um, he learned to say no. He shakes his head back and forth like this, but he has yet to learn to say yes. He, can't, he cannot move his head this way or say the word yes. And it's a problem. It's becoming a problem because I never know what he wants. Do you want this, Isaac? No, 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 no. That's all he learns to say. And I wonder why. I wonder, is it my fault as a father? Is it because I am only constantly telling him, no, don't, don't go play in the bathroom. Don't touch the stove. Don't pull my hair or do that. And I have not taught him what it looks like to say yes, what it looks like to say, this is what is good and this is what is right. You know, I ask it because for this reason, what is the, the main message of our church today on these terms, righteousness and justice? Is it merely this idea of saying, no, 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 this is not what you are to do? Or is it what the prophets speak of, this call to say yes, this call to say we are actively called to pursue righteousness and justice among the people around us? You know, if righteousness and justice is our only inability to say no to sin, I think there's going to be a main, a real problem that you're constantly going to come into tension like these religious leaders with the God of the Bible. Righteousness and justice are primarily these terms that describe active relational care. It means building right, equitable relationships and caring for the most vulnerable. I think his teaching of Jesus doesn't get any more clear than what he says in Matthew 25. In this passage, he, he does this thing where he separates. He says, he's, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats at the end of time. I'm going to welcome the sheep into my kingdom saying, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And, and this, is, this is the response from um, verse 37. It says this, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The way of Jesus is this way, righteousness and justice, caring for the least of these. 
and, and I'll describe it again this way, that out of a right relationship with God, we experience deep relational care for those around us, especially those who are the most vulnerable. You know, I'll end with one last point, though. How, how do we get there? How do we as a church get to this place of true righteousness and justice? You know, I'll ask this, uh, do, you, do you feel guilty? Do you say, man, I have not been doing this, but, but I need to do this. I'll say this. I don't think the message of the gospel is to wallow in your guilt or to move forward out of guilt. I don't think it says that I need to live lives of righteousness and justice. I don't do it, but I must do it to reflect God's character. That I need to help this person. I need to fix this. I need to be more like God. Being guilted and shamed to do things for our own self-interest through duty it may work for a short time. It may, it may turn us into a people of righteousness and justice for a short time, but it will never last. And it surely is not the message that Jesus brings. What is the other way? We become people marked by righteousness and justice when it becomes not something we have to do, but something we desire. I think Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, change lives come not out of a sense of guilt and duty, but out of a realization of beauty. And I want to share this um, illustration because I think for me, it hit the point back when, back when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I used, to, um, I used to hate hanging out with my family a lot. They used to love hanging out together, planned all these uh, family dinners. Um, they would go to church together. And those were not particularly things I was interested in. I had my own life. I had my own things that I wanted to do. But out of a duty, I would, I would hang out with them. I would go to these dinners. I would attend church. Because for me, I got something out of it. You know, I felt good about myself. I did it to appease them so my parents wouldn't be disappointed in me. But I think what's funny is now, nowadays, being much older, I find myself loving to hang out with my family. That I would, that I would spend a significant amount of money myself just to hang out with them, to travel to see them, to take them to a nice dinner to hang out, and, and maybe even bring, go out of my way to bring them to church here with me. Why I think originally these, these family dinners, going to church, it was a duty for me. It was something I had to do. But now I look forward, it, forward to doing it all I can. Before I did it because I had to. Now I do it because I want to. Before I did it because I got something out of it. Now I do it because the act itself brings me joy. You know, I think the way to find um, lives and the power to live lives of true righteousness and justice it does not come out of this sense of guilt and, and of duty, but it comes out through this new beauty that we find in the gospel. And I think that is what Jesus shows this woman in his last word to her. He says this, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from here and sin no more. The, fir the first step to becoming people marked by righteousness and justice is to reflect on the beauty of the gospel. Notice it is not sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Read it carefully. It says, neither do I condemn you. And then go, go from here, go from this truth and sin no more. Lives marked by righteousness and justice are not something we do to be saved or to find purpose. They're response to the beauty of the gospel. We first hear these powerful words of Jesus that say, neither do I condemn you speaking not just to this adulterous woman, but to all of us today. None of us here whom are without guilt for the great injustices of our world, who, who we all have been a direct or an indirect contributor to. You know, God's response to our sin, to this woman's sin, our legacy of disobedience, of injustice, of outright selfishness, it wasn't a curse. 
nor was it merely sweeping our sin under the rug. It was a gift and a sacrifice. It was the only one who perfectly upheld the idea of mishpat, of sadaka, of righteousness and justice, who came down for this woman and for us and who died for us. You know, he says to this woman, I do not condemn you because I will be condemned for you. He doesn't just restore relationships the way people expected a king to, with power and with might, taking out the oppressor. He rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. You know, he goes to the cross, having all of his possessions taken from him, his very clothes taken from him. He takes the lashing. He takes the scorn. He takes the oppression himself. The God of the Bible, he doesn't just say, I identify with the poor. I identify with the vulnerable. He goes down the road himself, and he truly does. He says to each of us today, you know, I entered Jerusalem as king, deserving exaltation, but I ended up going to the cross, poor and oppressed, receiving the condemnation so that you who are truly poor and oppressed, truly vulnerable, who deserve condemnation can go and find no condemnation, but can find exaltation. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel that we live in, that he doesn't just even remove our sinful state. He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just blot out the negative, but he restores us to an even fuller life. That's the beauty. Um, two verses that summarize this, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's not only that. It's not only no condemnation. It's 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be no who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we are given this new identity, this new creation, becoming the righteousness or becoming the justice of God himself. You know, some of us, I think, we, we have trouble, including myself, doing justice because we feel empty. We ourselves feel not together. But the gospel lifts us up. It affirms you fully. It brings you a new identity, not rooted in ourselves but rooted in the finished work of Christ. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of seeing what he's done for us. My last point is this. So, you know, one is it is to reflect on that beauty of the gospel. But second, there is a call from God to respond to the gospel out of that beauty. He says to the woman, you know, knowing that I don't condemn you, that I do not condemn you, but go and from now on, from that truth, sin no more. He says, leave your life of sin. And, you know, we don't preach this, this only purity gospel that says all sin is, is being as personal, personally pure as we can be. We don't preach a social gospel either that says all sin is, is not, is not caring for the oppressed or those in need. We preach the whole gospel is a both and. It means, one, leaving our lives of, of sinful, sinfulness and a personal immorality, but is also deeply caring for if Keep deeply caring for the people in our communities that are most in need. My guess is most of us have focused so much on the personal holiness aspect when we read that word righteousness, which is absolutely important to God. But maybe we've missed the fact that the focus in scripture on these words is an active element, one of what you should do, what you should say yes to in a communal sense, as much as it is what you ought not to do in a personal sense. You know, leaving sin goes far beyond not doing what is wrong, but extends to doing what is right in right relationships with the people around you. It is learning not just to say no, but to say yes. Allow the truth of the gospel to transform you into a life that lives that way. The power that the gospel brings 
and it compels us to live lives of relational justice. Now, I know we can't, we can't do everything. God doesn't expect us to be involved in every form of justice there is, but there are surely ways we can, we can begin this process and start to live lives of relational justice in our community around us. And I see three from the passage today. One, it's this idea to confront injustice. Jesus shows that the religious here are guilty of sin toward condemning the vulnerable people, the woman herself. And he's not afraid to point that out. He's not afraid to point it out. But I think confronting injustice, it starts with ourselves. How have you or I been contributors, indirect or direct, to the injustices in our community? How have we failed to step in as God's people, called to be his righteousness and justice, um, and failed to step in toward the vulnerable and the poor, our fellow image bearers, to, to lift them up and to build them up into right relationships? You know, call it out in our first in our own lives. But then secondly, how do we see it happening in our community around us how can we call out the injustices? How can we work to build a whole community that is built on right relationships? But I think secondly, and probably most importantly, is to get proximate to the vulnerable and those in need. Jesus bends down and he talks to this woman. He has a conversation with her. He picks her up and he gives her this charge to sin no more, to live a full life. You know, maybe it starts with getting to know our city and the neighborhood we live in. Who are the vulnerable among us? Who are the children in need? the refugees, the people experiencing homelessness? How can we as Christians who have become the righteousness and the justice of God step in and get close to these people? You know, one example may be to, to sign up and to join in for the soccer refugee clinic coming up at the end of the month. Or maybe it means reconsidering um, where we choose to live, where we choose to work, how we choose to live, who we choose to hang out with, and the places we choose to frequent. You know, how can we follow in the way of Jesus and start to get close to these people in need building right relationships where they are needed. But lastly, the last point, I think is to extend grace and to point to grace. Jesus extends this woman a tremendous amount of grace. And yet what we see is he points her to the ultimate grace himself. The fact that he does not condemn her, but instead he says, I was condemned for you. That we surely should seek out right relationships with the people around us. But the greatest news for our world is the fact that Jesus has already done everything. He's done absolutely everything to reconcile all people back to the God of the universe in right relationship. That's the good news that ought to be shared. You know, I stand up here today um, not knowing what all this means for my life, not knowing, not having all the information to share of what it means to do this, but I do know this, that it is vitally important to the God of the Bible. It's vitally important to who King Jesus is and who he has called us to be as his people, as his holy people. And we're going to continue this conversation in community groups. Stepping Stone, I hope you continue to have conversations of what that looks like for you in your community groups, in your small groups. And we're going to learn together what it looks like to live this out. And my encouragement to you is to be a part of it, be a part of it. My prayer today, though, as we head into this time of worship, is that you would hear the gospel, you would be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, that we who were poor, we who were vulnerable, who deserve condemnation, got instead exaltation because Jesus took that all for us on the cross. And maybe may we respond to the gospel as well, embodying the person of Christ, following in his way of true biblical righteousness and justice. Let's pray. Hey God, we thank you so much, King Jesus, for, for your gospel, for the fact that you do not just say you identify with the weak, but you have come to show us that you truly do. 
that you have come to truly take our place. That is the beauty. May we live in that truth, God. May we be moved by that truth that there is nothing we need to do for our own salvation, for our own purpose, but we find that completely in what you've done for us. And with that beauty, empower us, God, to go out into your kingdom under King Jesus and, and be agents of shalom, of reconciliation to the people around us, that we may be able to say that it is in on earth as it is in heaven, that it is in Baltimore, it is in Catonsville, it is in Howard County, it is at Hopkins, as it is in heaven. May we be agents who bring that here. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.